0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, I don't know how many of you when the very first iPhone came out, I don't know how many of you got that iPhone, but I have, I have one. It's sitting in a drawer somewhere, you know, it's deader than a doornail, but I got that first iPhone. And I recently looked up to see what the software license agreement, how long it is between an Apple user and, you know, Apple. And, you know, you click those little agree buttons or whatever. I looked it up. It was a, it was about a hundred pages when I got that first iPhone. Now it's About 450 pages long is how long that agreement is. So all of you Apple users, I'm sure you've read that, right? You've gone through it word by word to make sure you know the agreement that is being made between you and this company. No, we just kind of will click through different agreements like that. But did you know that God has made an agreement with humanity? The biblical word for agreement is the word covenant. It's a word that just sounds biblical in nature. And in the Bible, God makes covenants with his people, and he is the one who initiates these covenants. Abraham, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, received a covenant from God. God reached out to him, Abraham, I want to make of you uh, and from your descendants a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I'm going to increase your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believed this covenant from God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. The people of Israel then grew into a couple million people strong over a 400 plus year stretch of time. And then after being delivered from their captivity in Egypt, God gave to them an additional covenant. He said, uh, through to Moses, look, here's the promise, here's what I want for you, the the Levitical covenant, and they made that covenant with God. And here in Hebrews chapter 8, we learn that there is a new covenant or agreement that God wants to bring us into as his people. The people of Israel anticipated that this covenant would come, and Jesus brought this covenant by his blood. This is why Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and took the cup. And one of the things he said was, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood shed for you. So we live in an era now as Christians where the new covenant has arrived. But what is this covenant? What is this agreement? Is it a 450-page document for us to get lost in? Or is it more simple than that? And today we're going to look in Hebrews chapter eight at the covenant that God has made with us as his people. And it is a beautiful agreement that God has made and it is very different from the old covenant that Israel walked in and I would be willing to wager very different from the experience of many of us in our everyday Christian life. In fact, you could ask it like this. If you are discouraged in your Christian life, if you are tired and feel that it is old and wearisome, if you feel that it is a burden, if you feel that you are ashamed before God rather than approved and accepted by God by the blood of Jesus, if these are some of the feelings that you experience, if there's a powerlessness in your Christian life, a lack of progress and growth spiritually, then you might be experiencing the old covenant rather than the new covenant that Jesus has for you. So I want to help explain to you what this new covenant is today so that we can go out and get and experience everything that Jesus Christ has for us. Amen. I don't want to leave anything on the table. I want everything that he has for me. And so this chapter is, I think, greatly helpful to us in learning what the Lord has for our lives. All right, let's start out, though, by reading the first six verses of this chapter and looking at A couple of things that we need to remember before we inspect this better covenant that we have from the Lord. Let's start out in verse one. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Don't don't you like when an author does that? You know, it's just so nice of them as they're writing along, you know, like, okay, he's talking about Jesus as a high priest, all these different things. And what is this all about? Well, he says, hey, look, this is the bottom line. This is the point. I mean, he started his letter out in the first three verses by telling us that Jesus is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets and that when he came, he offered himself as a sacrifice once for us all and then rose from the dead and ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for us. That's the third verse of the book. And so he's now been declaring what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father, that he's operating as our great high priest. So that's why he says, this is the summation, this is the total, this is the main thrust or point of what I'm trying to say. We have, verse one, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up not men, in other words, the true tabernacle or the true temple. Now, you have to remember who received this letter originally. It wasn't a, a, a predominantly Gentile group of believers who received this letter at the very beginning, it was a group of Jewish Christians who still had a temple in existence when they received this letter. And they were very tempted to go back into all of the Old Testament practices and go back to the temple and tabernacle and all of that and seek a high priesthood. And part of the reason why is because they would have had friends and family who were not Christians who would have looked at them and said, Look, you've told us about Jesus, but we have a high priest. I mean, we have someone tangible that we can go to, someone that intercedes for us, someone that helps us. And so what the author says here is, look, this is my main point. We, as Christians, have a high priest. It's not that we don't have one, it's that we do have one. But our high priest, he says, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, when, when God gave Moses the directions on how to fabricate to build to construct the tabernacle which eventually developed into the temple there were a lot of different furnishings for that tabernacle a lot of different pieces of furniture one piece of furniture that did not exist however was a chair because the priests were always required to work it was like a way for God to communicate The job of the sacrifices that you are offering is never going to be complete. What you guys are doing with all of these animal sacrifices point forward to a perfect sacrifice, which will be a once and for all finished sacrifice, but you guys are not offering a total and complete sacrifice. It can never fully suffice you guys know what this is like at the end of your work day right you guys have probably your own little traditions that you follow at the end of a work day maybe even like a place that you like to sit down I know I have mine you know on Sunday Sundays that's the only day of the week I do anything you know no I'm just kidding <laughs> some of you guys want what does he do the rest of the week I don't know I just golf no I don't do any of that But Sunday is a really big work day for a pastor, right? You know, so I'm teaching all day long, ministering all day long, church at night on Sunday night and all of that. When the day is over with and we're all done fellowshipping and all that, I have a ritual. I go home and I make a big, huge bowl of popcorn. It's like an ungodly amount of popcorn. And that's my dinner on on Sunday night. And I I have a specific chair that I like to sit down in. You know, I just sit down in that chair and it's like a way of saying like, I'm finished, you know, my, my work today has been accomplished. I am done. And I'm sure you have little traditions like that for yourself as well. After a big, long day of work here, just a thing I like to do, you know, a, th- a thing that kind of s- communicates, I'm done working, you know, don't ask me another question, don't send me another email, don't call me, I am finished with my day. And, and here, when we see Jesus here seated at the right hand of the Father, that's what is meant to be communicated that his work is finished, his work is complete. That's why on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. He had sufficiently atoned for the sin of the world. His work is done. But notice also another thing that we're to remember before we really begin to digest and inspect and break apart this new covenant in which we are standing. It's found in verse three through six. Let's read it together. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In other words, Jesus has to have a gift to offer as well. Now, he offered himself once and for all, but what is he doing today? What is his ministry today? What is he offering today? Well, something beautiful. Let's go on and read. Verse four, now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all. That's what we saw last week. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. So he could not be an earthly priest. But he he goes on to say, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, according to the Old Testament law of Moses, they serve, verse five, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, He was instructed by God saying, and this is from Exodus 25, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, verse six, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In other words, what's being said there is that when the priests went into the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, what they were serving in was a shadow, a copy of the heavenly reality. This is interesting because so often what we like to do is project our earthly reality onto Heaven. You know, so someone says they have a vision of heaven and they saw Grandpa in his walker. What look, Grandpa is not in his walker in heaven. He'd smack you with that walker if that's what he had to be doing for all of eternity. He's got his new body. He's refreshed, regenerated by God. So You know, we love to take our earthly visions and project them upon eternity, but what we learn here is that the tabernacle, the temple, was actually a projection of the heavenly reality onto earth, that there's a throne room that God is seated in, that the angels surround him uh, in, that they worship him, that he is the center of the heavenly reality and sphere. And what is announced here is that the priests, they served in a replica or a copy, but Jesus is right now today, from his position, uh, with a better ministry, verse 6, enacted on better promises. So we have to remember, secondly, not only is Jesus' work on earth finished, but he still from heaven has a better ministry and work to do today. All right, that's what we're going to learn about for the rest of this teaching or the rest of this chapter. What is Jesus doing today? How is Jesus ministering and helping us today? All right, so let's read in verse seven. And what we're going to look at right now is we're going to look at five elements of this new covenant that make it the better covenant for us to walk in. Read with me in verse seven and in verse eight. It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and now we have this quotation from Jeremiah 31, which will take us all the way through verse 12. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Israel of Judah. So imagine it for a moment. The people of Israel, they were there operating under this covenant that God had given to Moses. They they were Abraham's offspring. They were purchased by God with the blood of the Passover lamb. They belonged to God. But the question was, how do these people that belong to God by the blood? How do they operate every day of their lives? What's our agreement with God? And God had given to them this law, this code to keep, which we'll talk about in a moment. But as they kept that law and covenant, there came a moment where the prophets began to declare that God had a new covenant in store for them. Jeremiah, who is quoted here in Hebrews chapter eight, he was one of those prophets who declared a future new covenant that was going to come for the people of Israel. In fact, that's what it says there in verse eight. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, some of you might be sitting here this morning and you're astute. You're thinking about this and you think, okay, Nate, you're going to talk to me about this new covenant that God has promised. And from the very beginning, it says that he promised it to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. I don't have apparently the DNA to come into this new covenant that God has set apart for Israel and Judah. But the reality of the rest of the New Testament is that though the gospel came to the Jew first, it also came to the Greek or to the Gentile, to the non-Jewish world. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2 verse 18, he said, it's through Jesus that we both, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. So though it is for Israel and for Judah, it is also by extension for all the nations. But it was to the Jew first, like Paul said, and also to the Greek or to the nations, to the world that we are living in. But here's the first great thing that I want you to see about this better covenant that we're in with the Lord. It's just very simple. It's found there in verse 8. It just comes from the word new. The thing I wanted you to see first is that this is a better covenant because it's new. This covenant that the Lord has made with us is not a modification or an enhancement. It's something brand new. It is a game-changing type of relationship that God wants to establish with human beings. You know, when companies try to sell you a product and they say new and improved, It's almost like in the back of your mind you know that if it says new and improved, it's actually not new. It's just a recycling of something that they've made before and they've refurbished it a little bit. They've made a couple of minor tweaks. It's not really new and improved, but this new covenant is something that is brand new. A radical new thing that God has done here on earth. Yesterday, Christina and I, we were up in uh, Santa Cruz for a little bit, we had decided to go hang out and attend a little marriage conference up at Mount Hermon together, the Christian Conference Center up there. And there was some free time. And so we went into Santa Cruz. I'm sure you guys have heard before that one of their mottos is keep Santa Cruz weird. And I'm happy to report they have successful. You know? <laughs> it's just a trip. You know, you just go, you're hanging out. And you're like, man, this is just so cool. This is so different. But we were walking around and we went to a record shop there Sun Street Records you know it just took me back you know because it was it was just like when when i was a kid you know i used to go to all these different CD stores. They weren't even really selling albums at that time. It was just CDs, you know, and you go and you're going through the stuff and they had all these CDs and all these albums and all of that. And you know, I was just having a good time, you know, just, oh man, do you look at this album, you know, or whatever. And we, we bought it. My daughter's in the, like a thing right now where she's got a record player. So we bought her a couple jazz albums and, you know, it was just kind of cool to like, just be there and, and think about it. But, but you know, that whole industry, Something new happened that radically changed it, right? I mean, first the internet came out and people just started giving music away for free and they were stealing music. And then then eventually we got our our iPhones and our smartphones and all of that. I heard of one woman recently who received a gift of a CD from a friend and received a gift and then said, you know, this is really kind of you to give me this CD, but like I I have this album already on Spotify and I don't even have a CD player. Could you maybe re-gift this to somebody else who has a CD player? She actually had the courage to say, maybe it's somebody over 50, give it to them. That, <laughs> that was her words, not mine, but uh, that's what she said, you know, kind of thing. And, and you know, that, that technology made a radical change. This covenant that we are in, it is a radical departure, a shift from what previously was. It changes everything in that it gives us a radical access to God. Everything now is new. So that's the first thing I want you to see and celebrate is that it's a better covenant because it's new. But let's continue to look in verse nine of Hebrews chapter eight at the next wonderful thing about this covenant. It says, not like the covenant, this is God writing through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, again, these were people who belonged to God. They were in in, uh, Abraham's family, recipients of the promises that God made to Abraham. they come out of their slavery in Egypt. They were wholly, completely, totally God's. And he was working in pretty powerful and miraculous ways in their presence. You know, he brought food from heaven, manna daily for them to eat, miraculous water, great provision. But when he gave them a covenant, he sent Moses up to the mountaintop and gave Moses the 10 commandments and the ceremonial law of God. And Moses came down from that mountaintop and said, this is what God has said. Do you want to enter into this covenant with God, this partnership with God, this way in which we are going to interact with God. And listen to what they said, Exodus 24, verse 7. It says, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And this is what they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, many of you have read the rest of the story, And you know that these same people who said, we will do it all, we will be obedient to every part of it, they did not have the power to keep the promise that they had made. I remember back when I was coming up in the 90s, there was a, 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 it was a great ministry. God did amazing things through it. It was four men. It was called Promise Keepers, and guys would get together, and it was these big conferences, and they would make these commitments, these covenants to the Lord. i will keep these promises. And I like that God was working in the lives of different men here on earth, but the reality is we do not have the power in and of ourselves to keep so many of the promises that we make to God. The people of Israel said we will do it, we will be obedient, but they did not have the internal drive and power to keep those commitments. Our family, we have a a dog, his name is Max. And uh, he's a tortured little soul because he's got—I got three daughters, so it means he has like all these moms just loving him, cuddling, and he hates cuddling, you know. So he's just trying to be a man, and uh, and they're just always trying to cuddle him and make him into a little puppy and all of that. But one thing that they'll do to torture him is that they will take food. And they'll put it on his paws as he's sitting there. You know, a little piece of popcorn or something like that. They'll put it on his paws and they'll say, Max, don't eat it. You know, and he'll just sit there, you know, just looking at it. And they'll put like tons of little pieces all on on his leg. And he's just sitting there. I'm like, man, the poor guy. He's a man. All he wants to do is eat. You know, just let, let him go, you know. And eventually, the moment comes where he does not have the power. But, but and, he, and he breaks free, you know, eats it all or whatever. But, but that's what the people of Israel were like. There's this thing we want to do. There's these things that we desire to do internally, but we'll try, we'll try so hard not to do the things that the Lord has told us not to do. But eventually, that moment came where they broke the covenants that God made with them. That's why it says there in verse 9, God actually said, you may have read that line and thought, man, that sounds very uh, stern from the Lord. He says, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That does not mean that God did not care for them. It does not mean that God's heart was not a heart of love for them. What it means was they had entered into this covenant that if they obeyed, God would bless, and if they disobeyed, he could not bless. And so this moment came where through their disobedience, he had to refrain from showing his concern for them. He had concern for them, but he could not do the things he wanted to do for them because they were in a human effort-based kind of covenant with them, or at least they turned it into such a thing. Here's the second thing I want you to see about this beautiful covenant that we have with the Lord. It is a better covenant, this new covenant, because... It is grace-based. It is grace-based, number two. It is grace-based. It is conditioned on the grace of God. Listen, so often we need to be reminded of this grace from the Lord. This conference I was at this last weekend, there was a little question and answer time where people were asking different, you know, marriage or family-based, you know, kind of questions. And this one younger wife, she raised her hand and she stood up. She explained her situation, you know, that she's got a few young children. And, and uh, she just was very honest with the group. She said, you know, I'm kind of struggling with anger. I just find myself throughout the day, you know, I just get really upset with my kids or what's going on and, and all of that. And, and I'm just trying to figure out how to how to deal with this in my life and in my heart. I feel it's a real problem, and it's actually hurting our marriage at the, at, at the end of the day because, you know, I just am so angry and so upset. And, you know, they gave a few different answers, but then concluded by talking to her about the possibility that what she was dealing with was this desire to have perfection, that, that, that she had kind of created things in a certain way and because that was kind of the way she described it. Then these kids come in and they act like kids and they destroy my perfection. Or they, these people that I need to behave in a certain way in order to be a positive reflection on who I am, they act in a way that is not a positive reflection on who I am but a completely different reflection on who I am. And what they encouraged you in was it could be that you're striving for perfection because you've yet to embrace a grace-based relationship with the Lord. I realize that when I talk about a grace-based relationship with God, there are many, especially those in the church, those who have loved the Lord, who begin to wonder, won't that promote a lawless kind of life? If, if grace is the foundation of a person's relationship with God, then won't that promote a lawless kind of life? And, and if you're thinking that, then there's part of me that, that, that feels that I've preached the gospel accurately and successfully because that's what they said about Paul and the gospel that he preached. There were many who said, what you are preaching, Paul, is dangerous because it will lead to a licentious, lawless group of individuals. But well, Paul went on to teach in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that in actuality, someone whose heart who has been touched by the gospel, it's as if they have died with Jesus, were buried with Jesus, and rose from the dead with Jesus so that they could experience the newness of life that is found in Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate actually out in the baptismal tank uh, this afternoon. An outward image of the believer's Identity with Christ, to being crucified, buried, and then raised with Christ. And he went on to explain that we are dead to trespasses and sins, but alive to God. And that we must reckon ourselves to be so. That it is actually the grace of God that causes us to respond in obedience to the Lord. Alright, so that's the second thing I wanted you to see, is that it is a grace of based covenant but verse 10 is where we see a huge part of this covenant let's read it again uh, or read it together in verse 10 of hebrews chapter 8 it says for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord this is what god declares about this new covenant through jeremiah so many years ago quoted here in hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 he says i will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is really where the new covenant begins to shift into something radically different from what was before. It is where the inward motivations of a human's life are changed where God takes his law and he writes it onto our minds and writes it onto our hearts. Now, you might remember under the old covenant, one thing that God had said was to take the law and write it on their wrists and put it on their foreheads, to put it on their doorposts, to talk about it as they went out through their everyday life. And many of us will even do something similar in our modern era. You know, maybe put Bible verses up in our homes or have scriptures that pop up on our screens to remind us of God's word. And that is fine and good. But what he's announcing here is that it will not be external but internal. That he will actually write his desires into our minds and into our hearts. This leads us to the third great thing about this better covenant. It's this. Number three, it is inward and dynamic. It is inward and dynamic. Now you see, when Jesus came along, he announced that there was a problem with the world. I mean, if you look out at humanity right now, what are we all arguing about all the time? Usually we're arguing about what's wrong with the world. And people have different answers to what's wrong with the world. Sometimes we think what's wrong with the world is... uh, uh, inequality in wealth or something like that, 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 you know, would solve every problem. And I'm sure it would solve many problems, but sometimes people think it's education. You know, we, we need more education. If, if only we had that, then the problems in the world would go away. We forget so easily Nazi Germany was one of the most well-educated countries on planet Earth at the time that they did what they did. It's not education that's going to, at the end of the day, save us. So often we're looking outside of ourselves at the problem, but what did Jesus say? Let's look at this on the screen together. Mark chapter seven, verse 20 to 23. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, and when the Bible talks about men in this way, it's talking about humanity, so you're included as well, ladies. So this is, you get to be part of this also. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus said, come from within, and they defile a person. In other words, in answering the question, what's wrong with humanity, Jesus would say, humanity. The heart. You may have heard the famous quote from A bygone theologian named G.K. Chesterton from England, the paper wrote the question, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote back and said, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I have an answer. It is me. It's humanity. We, We are broken. It is from the heart. We need a transformation of heart. This is what the new covenant provides for humanity. Listen to this from Ezekiel chapter 36. We could put that on the screen also. Verse 26, it says, in anticipation of this new covenant, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule.'" In other words, this new heart is going to lead to a transformed manner of life. The spirit of God in us, the new heart in us, the new spirit in us leads to a different kind of living. So for this, we get a new heart, but we also, as Ezekiel says there, get the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus talking about this also in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. His disciples were worried because he said he was going to leave Jesus was very helpful. And so they're worried about his departure. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, he said to his disciples, for he dwells with you. At that point, the Holy Spirit was with the disciples because the Holy Spirit could not yet reside inside of the disciples because Jesus had not yet ascended back to heaven. Once Jesus ascended, then he could pour out the Spirit. So he says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. For every Christian, every believer, every person that's ever truly placed their faith in Christ, they've been born again and the Spirit of God is deposited into their hearts. We get a new heart, we receive a new spirit. All right, so at this point, we're rejoicing, right? Praise God. This is a great new covenant that we get. We're, we're talking about inner, dynamic, real transformation. Don't you guys want this? Doesn't this sound good? But I'm sure if you're anything like me, some qualifications begin to enter into your mind. Like, okay, if that's what we get, where the law is written onto our hearts and onto our minds, if that's what's happening, then why do I... So often act like I do. Why do I so often do what I do if I'm so brand new on the inside? Well, for that, I wanna take you to Galatians chapter five, 16 and 17. Look at this on the screen together. Paul writes and says, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let's just leave that on the screen to to set into our minds for a moment. What he's announcing here is that there is a battle that takes place in the life of a believer. You have a new nature, a new heart, a new spirit that, that the Lord deposits into you. But you also have what is called the flesh in this passage. Some people call it the old nature versus the new nature. I prefer to call it the body of sin or the flesh or carnality against the new nature. And in thinking of it that way, what we learn is that there's two options. I could either respond to and obey my flesh, my body of sin, which knows how to sin, likes sin, enjoys sin, and once it gets engaged in it, it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper, or I could live by the Spirit and walk by the new nature that the Lord has given to me. So what does Paul say to us? He says, so walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if I could say it like this, a question we might ask is, why don't so many who are seemingly in Christ grow? One answer that we must give is because at times, there is an utter refusal to feed the spirit. When we're just feeding the flesh over and over again, partaking of fleshly things over and over again, then we're bound to follow the flesh when the moment of decision comes. This is part of the reason why I just want to be about the things that God is about. Because what you're doing there is you're feeding the spirit. Rather than saying, I am going to become by myself a person who's obedient, what you say instead is, I think the Lord will transform me with this new nature he's given to me to become more and more obedient as I simply feed on the things of the Spirit, as I put myself where the Holy Spirit is and at and set my mind upon the things of the Spirit. Let's listen to this from 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, as an example of this point. He says here, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Now I know those are very biblical kind of terms. You don't talk like this. You know, what are you doing right now? I'm just beholding the glory of the Lord. I have an unveiled face. But what he's saying is that Jesus made the way for us to be able to come straight into God's presence to set our minds upon the stuff that Jesus is about to think about Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to experience Jesus. He, he paved the way for us to do that. So when we come to church, it's not, I'm gonna go to church because that's what good people do. We say, no, he told us to not forsake the assembling of the saints, and that when we get together, he's gonna speak, he's gonna be present in that moment. So as we come together, I'm trusting he's gonna take that instrument, as I behold his glory in that situation and environment, and he is going to, listen to this, verse 18 transform me into the same image. What image? Well, he just said it. He said, the glory of the Lord. The goal of the Christian life is Christ likeness, increase Christ likeness. You become more Christ like as you behold these Jesus things. And you're transformed into the same image. You become more like Jesus. Here's the next line, though. He says, From one degree of glory to another. All right, if you were coming in here today hoping for the magic wand, I don't got it. It doesn't happen that it's just an instantaneous transformation, it is a glory to glory kind of transformation. It is lifetime transformation. It is, you started out in Christ, you were in the Word, you were growing, you were in fellowship. You were serving, you were giving, you were going for it, just saying, I want to be where the Spirit is. And He was transforming you through that. And then over time, you got bored. And you walked away from those same things that the Spirit was in, that the Lord was transforming you with. And that transformation began to cease. But if we continue to behold the Lord, we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I know that sounds slow, and it is slow, because it's the grace of God. I'm so glad he's down to do this slow road with me, that he's glad to go through this process with me, and he says this comes, how does this transformation come? Does it come by you, does it come by me? No, he says it comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the Lord working this transformation. But part of the reason I'm making a big deal about this new covenant today is because I think a lot of people don't know about it. And another reason I'm making a big deal out of it is because the Bible does. And another reason I'm making a big deal out of it is because I've been putting 2 Corinthians 3.18 to the test for 22 years now. This for me has been where my greatest source of change and transformation and maturity has come from. It has not come through willpower, It has not come through me being a disciplined person. It has not come through any of that. It has come from hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus has written more and more. I'm not saying it's perfect yet, but from glory to glory, he has written his word onto my mind and onto my heart, changing the inner, inward motivations inside of me. And so I want you to see this and embrace this as well. All right, let's get back to Hebrews chapter eight together. Two more small things for us to see, not that they're small in nature, but small in the sense that I'm not gonna talk as much about them as I did verse 10. I think it's a real central theme of what this new covenant is about. But back in Hebrews chapter eight, it says, verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, in the new covenant, it's not that teachers are dispensed of. Obviously, I'm teaching right now. I must believe that there is a place for that in the body of Christ. And I do. Jesus came, He taught, He appointed His apostles. They taught, he prayed that we would be connected to their teaching. In John 17, and when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he poured out and gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So Jesus is about teachers for the church, so I will gladly do what my part is, and I'm so thankful for people who have taught me and other teachers in this church and those who have that gift to be able to communicate the things of God to God's people. He's not saying here that God is dispensing of a teaching ministry. What he's comparing it to, though, is the representative nature of the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you wanted to hang out with God? Go get a priest. In the New Covenant, you want to hang out with God? By the blood of Jesus, go hang out with God. You have that kind of access to him. We do not have to say, know the Lord. We can all Know the Lord is what he's saying. So, the fourth great thing of this better covenant is that it calls us into a personal relationship with God. And then, lastly, in verse 12, look at this. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He chose to end on this line. He chose to end the quotation from Jeremiah 31 with this line because it's major it shows us that another aspect of this new covenant is that, number five, it leads to total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. So in verse 13, he announces, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And Look, when he wrote that, he wrote that to a bunch of Jewish Christians who had a temple that they could still go to if they so chose. But what he's announcing, it's like a prophecy. It's about to come to an end. It's about to vanish away. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire and was complete and finished. It totally and entirely passed away. So this morning, as you think about Hebrews chapter 8, what I want you to consider is that the Lord, he's offering you an agreement. It's all initiated by him. It's something that he has designed. He wants to make a trade with you. I remember when I was a little boy, I was in fourth grade or so when I got the Atari 2000 video game system. All my other friends had Ataris before I did. I was the last kid on the block to get an Atari. So I didn't know anything about all the different games. And I had one game, it was called Pitfall 2. (laughs) It was a great game. But one day, this kid at school that I really liked, he approached me, and he started bartering. He started bargaining, and he said, hey, I got all these games that I'll trade you for that one game, Pitfall 2, and he started listing all these games. That was before YouTube. I couldn't go home and look them up online and see all these different games. I just heard the titles, and I thought, that sounds incredible. I am totally going to rip this guy off. And so I went in the next day, I had my one game, he gave me like four or five games, and I went home, and every single one of those games he gave me was terrible. And I remember just sitting there thinking, there's nothing I can do, I'm totally helpless, I can't trade this back, this was a horrible deal, this was a horrible trade. Jesus comes in, and he has a beautiful trade to make with us today. If you have had an experience with God that is filled with absolute shame, he comes in with the new covenant and he wants to offer forgiveness. If you've had an experience with God that is totally external and religious and just outward obedience, he offers a thing where you come to him and walk with him and he will change you from the inside out. If you've had an experience with God where it feels old and stale and far from fresh, He has what is called a new, fresh covenant that he wants to bring you into today. And if you have had a relationship with God that seems distant and impersonal, where he's far off and there's other people that are close to God, but you're not in that camp, he is offering to you today a personal relationship where you can enjoy him for yourself. This is the glory of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you run in it if you're a Christian today because Jesus shed his blood so that you might have it. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.